that's when Katniss became a bad bitch. Welcome to another episode of Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. I'm Nellie. I'm Quinn. And I'm Pate. Today we're joined by one of our favorite humans, Mandy Mopwindu. Mandy is a student of English, psychology, and creative writing, a published writer, a poet, an activist, student leader, and a dear, dear friend. She holds many big, big, important titles, so we're grateful that she's taken the time out of her very busy schedule to chat with us today. Welcome, Mandy. Hi, friends. Today we're discussing a collective middle school obsession of mine, Pates, and Nellie's, and countless other millennials and Gen Zers, the Hunger Games. If we had the money to get copyrights to the Mockingjay whistle, we'd insert it here, but we don't, so just imagine that it's playing behind me right now. Before we dig in, though, this is a reminder that the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain have not yet been arrested. As such, we want to encourage all of our listeners to continue to donate, sign petitions, protest, and make calls in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. As we have in previous episodes, we'll finish out with a few action items and suggestions for ways to get engaged, so be sure to stick with us. Although the Hunger Games film, directed by Gary Ross and starring Jennifer Lawrence, Josh Hutcherson, my first middle school crush, and Liam Hemsworth, is a great quarantine flick for many reasons, namely seeing Josh Hutcherson seductively rub Vaseline onto Jennifer Lawrence's forehead in a cave. We'd figure it'd be an interesting read to analyze now, in this particular moment almost a decade after its initial release, as the United States continues to grapple with and protest against injustice and oppression. Let's get started. So I thought it would be cool for us to just start with general thoughts when rewatching this movie. Mandy, I know you watched it the other night and you mentioned how it was a little too close to reality for comfort, and I completely agree. But I also enjoyed rewatching it because I feel like truly the last time I watched it, I was what, 13? How old were we when this came out? 12? We were, no, we were in high school when the movie came out. Oh, okay. My B. Which even, which surprises me because I remember I like forced my father to go with me to the Hunger Games movies because this is so embarrassing but like this is the tea (laughs) my mom and I shared Twilight together huge Twilight fans when team Jacob squirrel one time team Jacob we went to the Smyrna movie theater at like 2 p.m on a Tuesday and I wore my team Jacob shirt and she wore her team Edward shirt and it was really embarrassing so I was like Hunger Games is gonna be me and my dad's thing he had not read the books and when we went to see this in theaters I was like yes I love this love story like this is totally normal and my dad walked out of it being like what the hell have you been reading and what did I just watch and I watched it back this time and was like holy poop this is terrifying. I don't know what was wrong with like all millennials and Gen Zers that we were like, yes, this is 100% the tea. Like we, and, and I, and, and that's fine because I think that it's an important narrative, but at the same time, I don't think I thought critically about it at all. Like all that I was thinking of when I thought of the Hunger Games was like, oh my God, I love Josh Hutcherson. Yeah. Like, please, like, rub Vaseline on my forehead in a cave. I was not thinking critically about, 
protest. I was not thinking critically about the implications of this. And so rewatching it, I was kind of upset with my 13-year-old self because I was like, I simply know that you had some mental faculties going on. So how did we just miss all of this? So the movie came out in, what, 2012? And this was the year right before I left home from, like, Burma for the first time to go to Australia. So I was just... I watched it and I love Greek mythology and this is sort of loosely based on the labyrinth myth thing. So I like Quinn, I didn't really think a lot about it. I was just like, oh, this is cool. It's a nice, not nice, but like it's fantasy. We're following the story of this girl and she's going off to fight and to the death, no less. Um, But watching it back just, For me, it was the parallels between the sort of developing countries and like the developed countries that sort of came into play, like the privilege of the capital versus the poverty of the districts. Those really just hit really hard for me just because I was just like, oh my God, how did I not see this before when I first watched it? But now I think with my own sort of lived experiences now I'm able to draw more parallels and see where a lot of different things come into play but honestly when I first saw it I was just like and this is kind of fun I guess yeah I mean I will give credit to I think I was in ninth grade or eighth grade whatever ninth grade me and like the the girls back then I think Katniss was at the time a really good feminist character to look up to because I think she really like portrays the idea of a maternal figure to her sister and Rue as well as being strong and taking care of herself and Peta in the arena so I think she's like she's a great person to look up to in general but I definitely admit I was like oh my god team Peta Gail's stupid um instead of realizing that they're being oppressed by a, a very um fascist society i don't know what kind of society is it like dictatorship president snow what are you what, it's just what? corrupt as hell yeah there we go um and yeah so my ninth grade mind was too busy looking at josh hutcherson but i think there were still some quality things i took from it i guess to go back to my love for this movie Along with One Direction, Josh Hutcherson was like covered, like covered my wall of my <laughs> bedroom. Also, this is like kind of an old age, so I'm really exposing myself here. Like, also, is, like, what does it say about us that we all love Josh Hutcherson? It means that we appreciate men that are vulnerable and in touch with our emotions, unlike Gail. Mandy, oh. are you Team Peter or Gail? I feel like we expose ourselves. Okay, Team Peter, like, okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think I have a soft spot for Gail, but like I I I love Peta. But also I think watching this movie particularly like knowing that we we're going to be talking about it on the podcast, the whole time I was just kind of like, okay, she doesn't like him. Like she doesn't like him. <laughs> I even though like we love him and he is wonderful yeah. and like truthfully like kind of a baby sometimes, but also baby, like we baby. stand a sensitive man. I also think that, like, I just wonder if this movie, I I think back to kind of the conversation you and I were having last week, Quinn, with how someone great wouldn't have been made the way it was if it hadn't been made through Netflix. Mm -hmm. And I think about how, 
this was a huge and of course like this is a film and also it was a book and this is it followed the plot of the book for the most part but I'm just like would there ever have been a scenario where Katniss would have just one on her own and Peta would have I this would have been horrible but Peta would have died like like that's what that's the only scenario where that could have happened and I'm glad he didn't die and also it would have made for like there wouldn't have been two more books. Like, it would not have been able to be a trilogy without the ending that it has. Spoilers, if for whatever reason you haven't seen Hunger Games. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, so that's something I was thinking. I was like, oh, like, I agree with you, Pate, because, like, part of why I loved this book and movies, this was, like, the, fa- the fastest I've ever read a book was the first time I read Hunger Games. Like, I remember being like, whoa, I blew through this, and I am not a fast reader, and I am not an English queen like these three so I very much it was the fastest I've ever read a book and I was obsessed with it and obsessed with the movie but now looking back on it I'm like dang and Katniss was a like feminist queen but this element of like so much of what draws up like the movie draws people into the movie especially when it was being marketed was this like love component and so I'm like what would this movie be without that and I actually think that's more so what we were talking about when, when, yeah. that, when, what you were saying, Quinn, so. Yeah. So there's something, there's an interview that I read with Suzanne Collins about just like Team Pedo or Team Gale. And <laughs> while there is like definitely the love triangle aspect and keeping in mind, like as Quinn said, this was like in Twilight era. So when YA was sort of just like pop in with, love triangles like you couldn't have a wife but without a freaking love triangle at that point very annoying um but Suzanne Collins writes wrote or said that uh Gail has a particular worldview in terms of what the capital what they should do to sort of rise up against the capital more violent tendencies whereas Peter's more like diplomacy diplomacy I can't say words now. Um, so in choosing between two of them, she says that Katniss is choosing not just a mate for life, but also a worldview, like which mm. one does she align with? So and I think it's, it is a little bit still about the love triangle and it's a good question as to whether Katniss would have won or could have won without PETA, I'm inclined to think she couldn't have just because of the structures that are in place and like put against her to kind of shove her into this particular mold of what a woman in this like environment and this power structure should be or look like or do. So I feel like Katniss on her own would have been vilified, vilified and then probably killed off eventually yeah and I just want to say something on this like really quickly and then I promise we'll move to the next question but something that really stuck out to me now being a 22 year old woman and like applying for jobs and things the whole idea of likability (laughs) as a woman looking for a job now and granted I am a white woman so with that comes an inherent amount of privilege and like I 500% recognize that and my job search process is going to be inevitably easier because of the color of my skin compared to black women and um, women who are people of color. However, something that's come up for me in my job search has been this idea that I need to be quote unquote more likable 
or the person that someone wants to have a beer with. That's actually what someone told me. Um, and I believe that that came from a good place. However, it was still really frustrating and infuriating because as women, how are we supposed to control the ways in which we are perceived? But I really loved that this book and this movie acknowledge that. And it is a dystopia, but it's a dystopia in the future where this is still an issue. And inherent to the political patriarchal structure is this idea that the woman has to be likable. And Hamish is even like, hey, this is crucial to your survival. There's a political element to this. You need the sponsors. And that was something that really spoke to me because I was like, even in fantasy, even in hecking fantasy, this is still the truth. So I just wanted to say that because it was something that was grinding my gears throughout the film. But this question, I'm so excited to ask Mandy. Mandy is the queen of fantasy. We were texting on Instagram yesterday and I was like, I don't know that much about fantasy, but I simply love to talk about it. So this is like my dream question. But Mandy, how does the Hunger Games match up to other fantasy novels, other fantasy worlds, other fantasy or sci-fi movies in terms of its representation of women? Well, big question. And I'm probably, I'm going to draw on some of the more popular fantasy novels, books, films that have been going on. But in my opinion, like, first of all, we have a female protagonist Mm -hmm. and she's just standalone. It's a woman right which is not something that we see a lot usually in a lot of the films you have the really strong really smart female character who is like so obviously should have been the quote-unquote chosen one if we're gonna Mm. go with that trope but she's always like a side character see like harry potter hermione in harry potter obviously she could have killed voldemort by the end of book two at least but Instead, she's relegated to this role of helping Harry, who is a man, and he's good. He's a decent human being, but that's kind of his whole thing. He's, like, slightly oblivious and nice, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Um, And similarly, in the... I know it's not a great film, but uh, Percy Jackson, The Lightning Thief, Annabeth, super strong, super cool also side character slash love interest. Also Tigress in Kung Fu Panda, who was mm. like, she was built up to be the chosen one in particular, but then Poe the Panda shows up and he's like, ah, yeah, I don't know anything about Kung Fu, but somehow I'm the one who's supposed to save the world, which is fake news. So <laughs> in Hunger Games, it's really cool because we get to see Katniss as a strong female protagonist who's, Like, that's her role. That's what she does. Like, the story is hers. And, like, I think she subverts the chosen one sort of trope because, you know, she volunteers for her sister, for Mm. Prim. So even on the level of motive, it's for another woman, female character. And, yeah, so it's not a a prophecy thing. Like, she does it of her own free will. So it's choice. And she kind of just gets swept up in the revolution, becomes the face of it later on. So that's a lot about The Hunger Games. And also one really cool thing, I uh, recently watched 
a virtual panel with some fantasy authors and they said fantasy is a, the literature of trauma mm. but the hunger games and i'm going to draw a parallel to the lord of the rings because i love the lord of the rings except <laughs> a lord of the like, rings queen <laughs> i'm a ringer who knows i'm wearing a <laughs> necklace that's like lord of the rings related right now um but the films the hunger games and the lord of the rings they both have a protagonist who falls into this hero role unwillingly like frodo doesn't want the ring he gets it because bilbo left it to him katniss doesn't want to be a tribute she volunteers because her sister was chosen and at the end of the books the films they both end up at the end of the journey with irreversible trauma mm. like there's no happy ending for them even if it's like quote-unquote peaceful satisfactory ending it's not happy they never get over that trauma so that's it's kind of it's interesting to see how it's if fantasy is the literature of trauma it's doesn't speak to like the healing of that it's just you know packages it in a way that is more accessible to an audience who may not normally think about it that way i love that that's such a good point i've never thought of it that way yeah, and I feel like I feel like kind of speaking to that last point of you how you can't really like package healing or market healing. It's not something that is ever prioritized in our our culture. And yeah, I don't know. That's so interesting. I've never heard that. So thank you. And I also think it's interesting compared to the Hunger Games because I think The Hunger Games does a great job of showing, especially, well, in the second movie, I know we didn't watch it, but we watch Katniss try to heal from the trauma and even continues into the last book slash movie. And when I'm watching it now as a graduated college scholar, I always try and think how I can continue to learn something from these movies that at first glance, you might not think have, you know, lasting lessons, but, you know, when watching the very last and when Katniss and Peter are about to eat the berries and then they don't, I, you know, I'm wondering like, like these people are willing to die to like show a point or, you know, part of me was like, is Katniss willing to die or is she trying to like call a bluff on the Capitol? And like, I'm just trying to consider all these different aspects that could be, you know, lessons for these young people watching this movie. Like, are you willing to die for a cause or what are you willing to sacrifice? Um, and also, you know, at what lengths are you willing to go for something that you believe in? That was kind of a ramble. I don't know if it makes sense. Oh, I love that. Also, this is random and we don't have to include this, but it's something that I'm passionate about. Do we think that the girl, the redhead, who was really good at scavenging it, Fox face, do we think that she purposefully ate the Nightlock? That, I need to know. What do y'all think? That I guess so was smart. Of, of course she did. That thing she was doing at the beginning with the leaves yeah. and identifying leaves, she had to know that those, if Katniss knew that those par- berries were poisonous, no shade to our queen. She is intelligent, but she cannot identify all of the leaves. So the girl that identified <laughs> all the leaves. simply cannot. She cannot identify all the leaves. So the girl who identified all the leaves had to have known that the berries were going to kill her. And she said, eh. Literally, <laughs> oh, okay. That's how she died. She went, eh, and then ate she them. Said, and then oh. just like, 
fell over. Also, now I'm realizing it. How problematic is it that her name is literally Fox Face? Fox Face. Katniss didn't know her name, and she was like, her face looks like a fox, and she has red hair, so it's Fox Face. Literally all of these names are like, what the fork? Like, Glimmer, Marvel. I, like, love to hate Glimmer, you know? You, like, love to hate her. (laughs) What? Right? She's, like, from the parent trap. You love to hate her. And when she dies, when she was, like, trying to do the bow and arrow, and she just couldn't because only Katniss can, it was so satisfying to see her die. Sorry. Whoa! Like, to speak to that, I felt, like, I remember as a kid kind of, I might take this out, but I remember as a kid, like, kind of enjoying, like, her death because I think she's, like, so, this is not feminist. Sorry. Because I was like, oh, she's, like, the worst. And so I was, like, ready for her to die. And also, like, the crazy thing about this book is that, er and movie, is that literally everyone has to die for, like, it to have an ending. Well, that's the thing. When she died, when I was, like, 14 and watching this with my dad and like stuffing my face with popcorn and was like everything's fine I literally think that I was watching it after having read the books and was like yep another one down let's just get to the part where Peta and Katniss kiss like we need five <laughs> more people to die that's so forked up admittedly like, I remember watching it the first time and being like okay well when are they gonna kiss and being like Ugh, that was barely a kiss like being so <laughs> mad Am I the only one who, like, doesn't like the cave scene? Like, it makes me uncomfortable watching... It made me so uncomfortable watching it Katniss this time. trying to, like, flirt with oh, Because she's... Like, it's not real. And but I she think, doesn't like him, but she says, this is how we're gonna live. I'm sweating. I'm literally sweating. Because I think, like, in the, in, the, in the next movies, you see her actually, like, care for him, and that's not cringy at all. But this cave scene, I'm just like... Like, well, it's also the terrible shoot. at the end when she's like, now we try to forget. Like, as Mandy was saying, the literature of trauma, one could only hope that you could try to move past this. And he's like, I don't want to forget because we big, big kissed and we snuggled in a cave. Please. And she's like, I'm traumatized. And that like, my friend died in my arms and then I had to shoot a bunch of people with arrows. Like, I want to forget. And he's like, yeah, no. Let's kiss. Oh! I, mean, I didn't even think oh about that. God. Thanks for bringing that point up. You're welcome. So, I think we can all agree that Rue is such an important and p- pivotal character in this movie as she allows the audience to see Katniss as like a motherly figure, um, as well as emphasizing the gruesome nature of the games because Rue, I believe, is the youngest um, tribute at 12 which is the same age as Katniss's sister. Mm-hmm. Um, she seems to represent the in- innocence of the children required to fight to the death. Um, and so do you think there's any significance in this important character being a person of color? I want to say yes, but then the more I think about it and the time about this, like, this movie came out, I'm kind of struggling with whether or not the casting was, and I haven't read the books, so full disclosure there, that, like, I don't know if it was intentional or it was just, like, here, sake of diversity, have the two Black people in this movie and one of them dies. And I think there's, like, the deep significance in the parallels between Rue and Prim. Like, they're both flower names, they're both the same age, and mm. basically Katniss sees the parallel of her sister die in her arms during the game. So 
there is that. And I do think there's something to the, to your point, Pate, that, you know, she's representing the innocence of the children who are being forced to fight in this really terrible and gruesome way. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think in the book, she is specifically mentioned to be Black because yeah, I think, I think some people were like, when the trailer came out, they were like, why is Rue Black? And then all the people who actually read the book were like, she was in the book. Like, don't try and, you know, make a fight about this. Don't try to whitewash. That's simply right. also like upsetting that you're mad that two people in a movie are, are black. You know, see. Yeah. yeah, like the fact that like this movie is lacking representation for sure. But I do think it, like, and it goes back, I think we might discuss this a little bit later or we can discuss this now, but it's kind of like, I agree that Rue kind of represents I love the idea that she represents Prim. Again, my 13-year-old brain was like, oh, that's really sad, and I'm going to go cry for four hours, but I did not think about that connection. But I agree that she, like, allows her, allows Katniss to look like this maternal figure, which, again, is important for this whole, like, likability trope. But it does kind of beg the question, would it be, why not have ruby black and katniss be black like to me there is like a certain kind of power dynamic there where we as the audience are supposed to be like oh wow katniss is so good she's not racist she takes care of all people she sees her sister who's white in this black character and i mean i agree like katniss is 100 percent a feminist fantasy icon but i mean we've had a lot of white feminist fantasy icons like when i was little my girl was Princess Leia, still is to this day. But I do see a lot of similarities between those characters. Hermione, in the books, I know that it can be a little more, well, it's like she's not specifically, it's not specifically stated that she's white. People just kind of ascribed whiteness onto her. And then Mm -hmm. that was perpetuated by the movie. Annabeth, great example. Like, I think that we've had a lot of white feminist icons. And so seeing Rue, which also Amanda Stanberg, Strenberg, did an amazing job in this role. Give her all the Oscars. Give her all the doll hairs. But it does kind of make me want more of that representation. Like seeing her in this movie, I was like, yeah, she's great. But like, this is not enough. I want more. I would love to see Katniss be a woman of color. I was just going to say, I think that's a good segue to a question that Mandy was posing, which was how would the story change if Katniss was a woman of color? So I have a hot take on this. Well, not a hot take. I have a take. Um, (laughs) So, honestly, I would have, like, when I was watching the film again recently, in my mind, I was like, Katniss should have been a woman of color. Like, from everything that she's sort of been doing and how she gets, I don't know, she's, like, super cool, such an icon. And it's just the going against the Capitol and all of that, it's felt very, it would have been way more, like, salient and or pertinent to me if she had been a woman of color but then I thought about the likability aspect and then just the fact that she was cast as a white person lent her to be able to I think be more likable without trying as much like she goes onto the talk show and she's like I I say some words some people found it funny I guess that's cool and then like, she gains traction really quickly. Like, she rises in popularity. And I don't know if that would have happened if, from the offset, we saw that she was a woman of color. 
I may be reading into this, but I don't know. That's kind of where my head's at. No, I think that makes sense. And it's something that we kind of talked about during the Cool Girl episode where we talked about Gone Girl and we were like, when we're trying to read Amy as a character, is she a psycho or is she like a badass feminist queen? And it came down to this answer of like, we don't see enough books like this where a woman is so multidimensional that we have to grapple with it. And so we have to like ascribe everything onto this one female character because we don't see it in a lot of places. And I think that that speaks to if Katniss were a woman of color, because there aren't a lot of women of, of color who are represented in fantasy films, there probably would be that pressure, to your point, Mandy, to try to uphold that likability topos just because it's not something that's typically seen by audiences. And I think it speaks to the fact that it needs to become more normalized, which sucks to say because it's literally 2020 and we're in this position. But y'all, like even when Hollywood is like, oh, well, we just want to cast like the big, big stars because they're more well-known and like have better box office success. It's been proven that more diversified casts and diversified movies do better. So if you're just looking at it from a capitalist standpoint only, not even thinking about representation, y'all, please just get it together. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that when Hunger Games came out, it was, see, I think that there are levels of fights, right? There in terms of representation in particular, because at this point we were looking at male fantasy protagonists, just generally the market saturated with those fools. And so we have a woman in this role and that was revolutionary, right? So Katniss is our first in relatively recent history, one of our first super cool female protagonists that we had and so, I don't know, I, have we had a, you know, person of color as a fantasy protagonist yet? I don't, not, not really, there's not many that come to mind right now, but I think it, it's like weird step-by-step kind of thing. It's yeah. not an excuse or justification, it's just, I think, where people's minds were at, because there were people saying, oh, you know, in one of the articles I read too, like, Girls will identify with male protagonists, but boys will not identify with female protagonists. Yeah. So the push was to always have the male protagonists. But, you know, Katniss was revolutionary in that. And casting Jennifer Lawrence was revolutionary in that. But, you know, it's looking at it in 2020, it does not feel enough. Um, so continuing on the Rue conversation, one moment that really stuck out to me in 2020 was when Thresh demands Clove say her name in reference to Rue right before he kills Clove. Um, And of course this relates to a lot of the protests that I've been to. One of the biggest rallying cries has been, say his name, George Floyd, say her name, Breonna Taylor. Um, So in general, how does this movie and story connect with the protests we're currently seeing unfold across the country? And were there any moments that were particularly hard to reconcile with watching it now from the position of again being scholars and being perhaps more politically aware than we were in 2012 what was your takeaway on this yeah so I think part of the reason we really chose to talk about this film was kind of thinking like getting to rewatch it in this modern day context I think Pete you pointed out the kind of protest element that happens 
of course, there's a variety of protests. We do see protests in this movie, but we also kind of see it more so as you go throughout the series. Yeah, I definitely think, like, looking at the uprising that occurs after Rue's death in District 11 with kind of the the protests against the peacekeepers, that looked very familiar to our modern context and our ongoing context. It's not to say it wasn't relevant in 2012. It was super relevant then as well. Um, But I think, yeah, like you, and also just the kind of like seeing the, the levels of privilege that are present in the film is really interesting and how the districts one and two train their whole young adult lives to participate in the Hunger Games, whereas impoverished uh, districts are, sorry, I can't speak for a reason, but like they're dreading the reaping for, for this reason. And, and so, yeah, that doesn't necessarily play into the kind of racial elements of it, but I definitely saw class divides very much so in this movie as well. And I think that is also certainly really applicable to today. Uh, it's also, people can add their name into the reaping more times in order to get food if they don't have enough money to buy food and i think that is just another instance of class divide of district one and two like you said are training their whole lives and see this as an honor where gail has put his name into the reaping 43 47 times to provide for his family and just how much of a difference not only like the districts and the capital but the two wealthy districts and the less wealthy districts. Well, something that I was thinking about as I was writing this question was the recent NPR Code Switch podcast episode that's essentially asking white people, why now? Why are you becoming politically active in racial justice now? And this is something that I'm definitely guilty of where I was like, I feel like I myself am being anti-racist. So like, that's enough. And Spoiler alert, that is simply not enough. And I'm calling myself out because I think that that's something that needs to be normalized and like owning your shortcomings to be a better activist. But it left me kind of feeling frustrated with myself. And granted, yes, when I saw this movie, I was in eighth grade or ninth grade. But again, I had enough mental faculties and enough political understanding to look at this movie in this critical way and notice the ways in which race and class were being portrayed but I just kind of ignored it because I was willfully able to I think and so thinking back on the way that I watched this when I when it was in 2012 when I was at a predominantly white Tennessee public school it's like I think that that just shows that there's a journey and it takes it doesn't need to take time but for some reason it has taken white people a long time to become not necessarily interested, but like acutely aware and active and engaged in these issues. Mandy, I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially after kind of when I texted you the other night after you rewatched it and you were like, it's a little too close for comfort right now. I just love to hear kind of not to put you on the spot, but just to hear your thoughts in, in its modern day context. Yeah, I think, I don't know, just the whole, the parade moment really got me. The, when the tri- tributes were being paraded around and like Peter just like grabs like Katniss's hand and it's like, they're going to love it. And then he, they do the thing with the, they like raise their hands and it's, I don't know. I, I cried a little bit <laughs> and it, I don't know. I've always, 
what when I watched the film earlier, way earlier, that scene didn't have as much significance. Like it was just like, okay, cool. They're trying to get sponsors. They're trying to get people to like them. Of course, this makes sense. But just watching it recently, within the context of everything else that's been going on, it felt really powerful. In that, I don't know, maybe I'm ascribing meaning to it where there isn't as much, but. It was like, it was a statement. It was a powerful statement of, you know, standing up against the injustice that A, is happening in the world and B, within this sort of fantasy landscape of Hanum, the capital, and these kids being shepherded to their death. So yeah, that that stuck with me. And the salute that, Katniss does when Rue dies, like when the movie came out, it sparked like a revolution protest in Thailand, which like, because Thailand is really close to Burma, I very much remember that that happened. Um, There's a lot happening in the film that felt very pertinent to the current situation and the world in general. Yeah, I was looking specifically for articles that connected Hunger Games to activism and particularly because I I feel like in conversation or maybe I've seen like tweets and Instagram posts that are like are you surprised that our generation is the way it is because like we grew up on things like Hunger Games and I don't know what else if y'all have other ideas I'm sure there are others Spongebob when he protests against unfair wages at the Krusty Krab oh my god we love (laughs) oh yeah that meme where he's like I will tear down this establishment board by board and it's the crusty crab but also us at the entire world right literally but yeah so in one of the articles i found it was a mashable article titled teens on fire of course the hunger games generation knows how to fight the nra and the author chris taylor connects the plot of the hunger games to the protests following the parkland shooting he writes quote and i apologize because it's a long quote but it is important Quote, inside the Capitol, the political elite have become immune to the regular killings splashed across their screens. They've rationalized it as the price they have to pay for their way of life. But a handful of teenage survivors of the slaughter are starting to speak out, using their status as heroes to start questioning the whole system on live TV. The teens are articulate, telegenic, extremely media savvy, and highly dangerous to the president's party. They're the best chance for profound political change that anyone has seen in years, and they end up fomenting revolution, end quote. (laughs) Not only is this applicable to the activism that followed the Parkland shooting, but it is completely applicable to the Black Lives Matter protests happening in the streets today, as we've talked about. Do you think when Suzanne Collins wrote Hunger Games, do you think that she wanted to inspire a generation of activists? Do you think she has effectively done so? Do you think we can really give her all the credit? What do y'all think? Because for me, I'm like, I'm thinking about how we're rewatching this and being like, oh, I guess this is applicable to what's going on right now. But I don't think when we were watching it, we were like, yeah, fight the system, like, fuck the police, like, all that stuff. Like, I don't know that we were necessarily doing that when we watched the movie, because it seems like many of us were watching it. Other than Mandy, it sounds like Mandy was watching it (laughs) with an intelligent eye, which is unsurprising that she was the intelligent one out of the four of us. But we were like, PETA! (laughs) 
So what do y'all think? Do you think she wanted to inspire a generation of activists? I want to say no. I, okay, rephrase. I think inspiring the generation of activists was an unintended consequence of the subject matter that she wrote about. And drawing back to the interview that I read with her talking about the Hunger Games. So the book started as a way for her to explore the just war theory. So, you know, like, was, is war ever justifiable? And what happens when stuff happened, basically, in a very inarticulate way of describing that theory that I know very little about. But I think giving her the credit that she, you know, wanted to do this and wrote this as an, wrote this intending to inspire a generation of activists is a little bit far-fetched. But I do think that, like, the people, the, yeah, the individuals who did read it took the messages from that and found it very much applicable to the real world, which is very much like what we're doing now. But I don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't yeah. think that was the intention. The skeptical English major in me also kind of has an issue with just the idea of assuming what an author's intent is, because I think that at the end of the day, it's what you get out of the book that really matters, and it's really hard to prove. Thank you, Dr. Craig Hill and Dr. McPhee for pointing this out to me, um, but it's really hard to prove. Like, if we're talking about the Divine Comedy, we can't be like, oh, Dante wrote this with this in mind in order for his audience to get this out of it, unless there's a way to, like, document that. So the English side of my brain is like, mm, I, I don't know. I agree with Mandy in the sense that I think the fact that that's what our generation took away from it is really cool. And perhaps that speaks more so to millennials and Gen Zers and the injustices that they're being kind of awoken to and engaging with on a level that our parents didn't really. So perhaps if they were to read this book, they would get something out of it. No Tino Shade, love you mom and dad. Also grandmommy, you're a star. But I, I think it's an interesting question. But also the optimist in me wants to be like, heck yeah, she did. Suzanne Collin rocks. But I mean, I think the critical thinker in me kind of shuts that down a little bit. Suzanne Collins went to Alabama School of Fine Arts and graduated like the creative writing track. So Is one good thing about Alabama. The University of Alabama? No, it's a, it's a, it's like a school. I don't know if it's a public school in Birmingham, but it's for people who creative write, um, art, musicians, dancers, theater. I love Pete explaining fine art to me. <laughs> I love Pete <laughs> using creative but, write as a verb. <laughs> Sometimes she creative writes. But <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, one good thing that came out of Alabama, actually two, because I'm here. But <laughs> if she if you had told me that she went to the University of Alabama, I'm sorry. Go balls. Those books would have been thrown out of my home. Just kidding. I lost those books a really long time ago because I have ADD and don't know where I put anything. Thank you, Nat. But Nellie, <laughs> I hate myself. Nellie, what do you think of this question? What inspired you to ask it and what is your opinion on this? 
Uh, well, really what inspired me to ask is just seeing the kind of circulation of like, are you surprised our generation is like this? And I'm sometimes like, okay, I think we're giving our generation like a little bit more credit than we deserve because I also think that like, yes, some people are very, very active and that is good. But also I think there are plenty of people that are submissive and bystanders to things that are ongoing. Um, so I would hope that Suzanne Collins wanted to inspire a generation of activists, but I do agree with what Mandy said that it ended up being kind of a, an indirect outcome or a un, unprecedented outcome. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, I, there really are so many things in this movie that parallel to today. And I think it's hard to watch it with and separate yourself from that lens. Um, like there's the part when they're doing the, at the reaping, Effie plays a video from the Capitol that at one point says this is how we quote this is how we remember our past this is how we safeguard our future and it's like that bullshit where it's like we need to like like have essentially it's like it makes me think of fucking confederate statues sorry i can take out the f word or like bleep myself out if that, that we decide that that's a problem but also i think they deserve a big big f word in front of them like we do not need to have that in front of all of us all the time to fucking remember that slavery existed and also we are not effectively being taught about slavery in like public schools so like how is this effectively being a reminder of history and it's and serving as iconography for a for someone on the other side like on the wrong side like <laughs> the enemy and so I don't know it's just like corrupt government telling a backward whitewashed version of history that is very familiar and very present right now and I'm sure we could dedicate a whole other hour to talking specifically about this especially because Mandy is the queen of talking about representation particularly at Swanee but yeah I mean if y'all have thoughts on that before we kind of wrap it up this is just random. Y'all know I love big, big Czech Republic, big, big Czechoslovakia. That's what I wrote my women's and gender studies thesis on was um, maternal nationalism and the literature of the Habsburg Empire. However, something that I found really interesting, I, I studied abroad. I think I bring that up in every episode, but I studied abroad in the Czech Republic. Um, and we obviously focused a lot on like Czechoslovakia and their struggles under communism. And it was so interesting because so much of that video that Effie shows uses a lot of communist iconography, especially where it's like them reaping the fields, these like the symbolism of it being like the perfect worker and that we restore ourselves through hard work and like quote unquote pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to benefit the greater community. I was shook. Bojana Nemtseva would be having absolutely none of that. No one's going to understand that reference. Yeah. I do think, well, yeah, it's a whole time. I'm just like, I'm reminded of the article that our new vice chancellor of Sewanee wrote, um, where he talks about progress no longer being enough and that our generation wants change and not progress because we haven't like lived through the history that our parents and our grandparents have lived through. So it doesn't really make sense to us in this current state of the world that there's still injustice. There's still all of these different, again, injustices that we don't want to stand for and we don't understand why. So we do understand why, but like it's, it can't, it's not justifiable anymore. So 
he talks about how we sort of put we want change and i think that's part of it and to the confederate statues and all of that and just weaving all of that in it's it's stories right there are these stories that a a corrupt government can be telling its populace which can be seen as like this general narrative that everyone is supposed to sort of align to but to your point earlier nelly about the teenage survivors just sort of talking and using their stories to enact and inspire change it's we're seeing a, a rise and there's like a bunch of new narratives and that's i know it's something like the hunger games gives voice to that because as humans we do try like narrative linkage is a thing so if i tell a story and you have a similar story you're going to tell it because you know it's been out in the world it's been said so we try and link our stories up a little bit so i think yeah that's why i think the hunger games remains to be a really powerful statement on our world because it provides and utilizes the power of story and storytelling for you know a future that we can hashtag believe in i don't know but that's my that's my thing yeehaw well thank you vandy for being on today you're a big big star do you have anything that you would like to shamelessly plug about yourself um follow the order of the gown instagram yeah do yeah it. <laughs> do it OG Sawani. and if you know a poetry publisher honestly y'all i i i have words i can give you words just yeah yeah just give me a book i don't care uh <laughs> Super, super thank you to Mandy. I'm sure we'll thank you again at the very end of this episode. <laughs> but um, before we wrap up, as promised, we have some action items for y'all. As Quinn mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the cops who murdered Brianna Taylor have still not been arrested. So please visit justiceforbrianna.org. There, if you haven't already, or if you have, check it out again because it's constantly being updated with action items. There are a handful of different ways to get involved. Um, if you'd like to donate financially, there's an opportunity to do that, but there's lots of ways to contribute without the monies. On the site, you can um, make yourself available for more, a- for more actions and connect with Brianna's family and local organizers just by subscribing to the newsletter and you can also just share a a message holding Brianna's family in your heart and sending love to them. So I encourage you to do that. Words are really powerful. I know that we're always, everyone's always looking for different ways to take action. And this is something that has not, we have not gotten justice for, for Brianna. And it's important to remember that we are still fighting for that. Absolutely. Um, Each week I've been highlighting a different organization. This week I would like to highlight Outdoor Afro. It is the summertime. Obviously, I hope everyone's wearing their masks and social distancing, but hopefully you're also getting to spend some time outdoors. And Outdoor Afro is a really cool organization. It's become the nation's leading cutting edge network that celebrates and inspires Black connections and leadership in nature. So if you're interested, if you'd like to get involved, if you would like to donate, please check them out at outdoor. Oh, whoa, whoa. Check them out at outdoorafro.com and follow them on social media. 
So the group that I'm going to spotlight to this week uh, is right here in Birmingham called GASP. And it's called the Greater Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution because certain neighborhoods in the Birmingham area that are majority people of color are disproportionately affected by air pollution and have been notified by the EPA that they um, that the city of Birmingham needs to do something. But, you know, we have plenty of corrupt politicians that want to ignore that. So GASP is trying to you know, allow everyone to have the chance to have clean air and a healthy place to live. So um, their website is gasgroup.org and you can find out ways to get involved, either donating, volunteering, or writing letters to your state representatives. So the organization I'm highlighting, Wall Organization slash Theme House at Sewanee, the University of the South, is the Sewanee Community Engagement House. So their theme house and they have come up the two humans, who are they? Bernice Levesque and Jasmine Huang, absolute icons and queens, have created this allyship in action project and they have a whole website. So I think it's suanicoho.com.webnote.com. If you go there, click on the allyship in action project, there's a lot of really cool videos that explains, you know, how to be an ally in this time. So highly recommend going and taking a look. I just wanted to thank Mandy again for being here. As we said, you're one of our favorite, favorite people. You are a queen and truly one of the smartest people I know. So yeah. glad that we got to have this conversation via Zoom. Thank you. Y'all are amazing. I love y'all. <laughs> start crying. Okay. So this quote comes from President Snow, who is being problematic in his white rose garden, but it really sort of rings true and is sort of applicable to everything that is kind of going on. And we're going to take this quote out of context. So and here it is. Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. That's it. That's it. Don't be presence. No, he's trash. Don't be him, but have hope. This yes. has been Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. Thank you so much to Mandy and thanks to everyone listening. Bye.